The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishatayim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishatayim. Then the land had rest forty years. And Otniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishatayim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishatayim. Then the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Amen. Our second scripture. Uh, reading. Actually, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32. So go ahead and turn there. It's on page 92 of your Pew Bible. This passage looks at uh, Peter's understanding of Jesus and how Jesus relates to some of the Old Testament prophets, or one in particular. And it's part of his speech on the day of Pentecost. So that's Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 32. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Amen. 
And then our, our text of primary focus uh, this morning is found in 1 Samuel. And we're going to read a significant portion of the chapter. It's likely familiar to you, not to give too much of away, because you can't really go anywhere. It's David and Goliath. And what can be better than reading David and Goliath kind of the whole, whole way through? So it's 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to only look at the first 54 verses. <laughs> Listen here to God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. The second to him was Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah, of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. 
As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke the same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned for away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. When the words of David, when the words which David spoke were heard, they were told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to fight, or to, to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a, bear, or when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day 
to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened that the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his, or on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron and the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his weapons in his tent. Amen. Let's now bow our heads and silently meditate on God's word. O Lord God, you are the one who delivers your people. This morning as we... um, engage with David and Goliath, may we gain a clearer picture of how you deliver us, that is to say, your people. And just as with the Israelites, Goliath fell that all the nations would know that there is a God in Israel and that all Israel would know that they are saved not by the strength of their own might. Lord, we pray the same for us. As we look to our great Redeemer. May we go to the nations proclaiming your great work of redemption. And may we all worship you knowing that we are saved not by ourselves, but by Christ. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm betting that the the chapter of the Bible that I just read is not unfamiliar to you. I'm, you know, whether it's kids' Bibles or, um, you know, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, we've all heard David and Goliath. But I guess the question then is, how in the world do we apply it? Should we apply it? Should we read ourselves back into that story? How does that work? I mean, many would just say that David is a morality tale. Uh, Something, an ideal maybe that we should uh, ascribe to or or, or look to. uh, Well, if that's the case, David doesn't give us a whole lot to go on. I mean, it's not like a a Rocky video where there's this extensive physical training that he undergoes. I mean, he does work in another field. The text says it's literally in another field. He's a shepherd. Um, But we don't see much of David. I mean, we could look to David's faith, And we could see the way that David um, believes in the Lord and stands firm in the Lord and the Lord delivers him. And we could seek to to maybe apply that to our lives. Perhaps you even have um, 
some of Paul's writing to the Philippians rattling around in your, your mind where he says, you know, in Christ I can do all things, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if that's what you're, you're going to, if that's how you're going to approach the text, it's a relatively straightforward uh, scenario. David faced a difficulty in his life. He believed that the Lord would raise him up over it. He did. In the same way, when we face difficult circumstances in life, we just need to believe that God will, will deliver us. He'll raise us up over it and, and we will conquer whatever that obstacle is. But is that the way we're supposed to look at this? Let me give you an example of how we might work that out. Um, as most of you are spending your summers relaxing, uh, one of our youths has been assigned a mammoth algebra packet. Can you believe it? His teachers like actually expect him to be prepared for math in the fall. Well, this young man could look at this giant algebra packet and with the logic I've presented, say something like, you come to me with equations, formulas, and minus signs, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts. The next part, wherein he slings a stone at the algebra packet would probably be a little bit difficult to explain to his teacher, also the great sword mark through it. Of course, that's kind of just silliness, but it helps us frame the question. How in the world do we apply the Old Testament in general and this passage in particular? Perhaps you're here with something more difficult than a summer algebra packet whether it is a difficult diagnosis, whether it is a broken relationship, whether it is uh, some sort of depression or, or, or whatever the issue, we all come into this assembly this morning with sin in our lives and the very fact of sin presents difficulties in all manner of life. How, does David and Goliath help us with that? The answer is yes, but it's not in simple platitudes. It's not to say, hang in there, you got this, you'll, you'll overcome, chin up. If you've, you know, scroll through Facebook, if you scroll through Instagram, you see that constantly. It's not even taking a verse of scripture out of context and twisting it as is done with that Philippians verse that we just read. After all, earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul says, for it has been granted to you, and you say, yes. It's been granted to you for Christ's sake, yes. It's been granted that you believe in him, yes. And that you suffer for his sake. Ooh, really? Well, does that mean then that if I say I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I can do, that, that it means I can do all things except overcome the suffering that the Lord has for me? Something clearly is wrong if that's the way we're viewing this. Well, to help us as we come to David and Goliath, we need to look to the Lord Jesus. And, and before I hear a snarky junior higher say, Jesus is in the New Testament, Pastor Michael, I just want to remind us all of what was said in between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. He spent time teaching with the disciples and, and as he, he's teaching them, he began with Moses and with all of the prophets and he explained to them the things that were concerning him in all of the scriptures. It goes on to say that he opened there, that's the disciples' minds, to understand the scriptures. 
And we need to think about that statement. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament, all of it, is about him. As we come to 1 Samuel 17, if we want to apply it to our lives, we basically have to answer the question, how does 1 Samuel 17 point us to Jesus? And it's not that he's under every rock and tree. Every, you, know, you sometimes hear that. It, like any mention of wood in the Old Testament is a, is a reference to the cross. I don't think that's right. But we do need to recognize that Jesus is present. And as we look at David and Goliath, we need to recognize that Jesus is the Lord's chosen Messiah who saves his people. And even more, we need to recognize that Jesus, in his life and ministry, and in our proclamation of it, Jesus is the way that our Heavenly Father makes himself, his rule, and his grace known around the world. Well, let's look at this con- the, the context of this passage again, and maybe we can see how we see the Lord Jesus. So, if you picture, right, they're in a valley, the valley of Elah, and if there's a valley, there has to be at least two sides. And so on one side, you have the Israelites, and on the other side, you have the Philistines. The Philistines, throughout much of the Old Testament, were a thorn in the side of Israel, They weren't quite like Babylon and Assyria, which came in and destroyed the people, but nonetheless, um, they were a problem. They primarily had five cities in the surrounding area. They were near the Mediterranean. They were always present, and they always caused difficulty. On the other side, you have, you know, looking down, right, because both sides are looking down. On the other side, you have the, the Israelites, and they've come to do battle, and they're led by their king, Saul. Now, you might remember that King Saul was a, a Benjamite. 1 Samuel 9.2 describes him as a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So King Saul was literally head and shoulders above all of his countrymen, right? And as the king, he's supposed to lead the people in his understanding of God's word, He's supposed to lead the people by administrating the government so that it, you know, produces good laws that follow the Lord's commands. And finally, he's supposed to lead God's people by leading the army. The Israelites and tall Saul have a problem. And the problem has a name. It's Goliath. Now, admittedly, the scriptures don't tell us that Goliath is handsome, but... He is tall. In fact, he's more than a match for Saul's height. The scripture says he's six cubits in a span, and if we understand a a cubit to be about 18 inches, that means he's over nine feet. And we think we know what nine feet's like. We know basketball goal is 10 feet, but what is nine feet? Well, I measured. If Goliath were standing on the chancel, his head would be about right here, right? Put it another way, Joel Embiid, center for the 76ers, if the 76ers are still a team after all this, I don't know, but center for the 76ers. He's seven foot one, I think. Were he to walk onto the battlefield that day and saunter up to Goliath, he'd stand about right here. Joel Embiid does not look up to too many people in the world, but Goliath would have been one of them. Don't miss the irony here. King Saul has two defining characteristics. He's handsome, 
and he's tall, but he's no match for Goliath. He just can't compete. So Goliath calls out for 40 days, challenging not just the army of Israel, but also its leader Saul, and by extension, its God, the living God, the God of heaven and earth. And you know, were we to not have anything other than just this notion, we would expect that Saul would walk out into the battlefield and fight Goliath. But that's not what happens. Wherever Goliath goes, there's inaction on Saul's part, and there's terror within the hearts of the people. In short, the people are in a desperate spot. If they retreat, they cede land to the Philistines. But they cannot go forward unless they go through Goliath. So what are they to do? Basically, they're waiting because they don't know what to do. Now, if we look into the, the Old Testament context a little bit deeper, which is to say wider, we'll see that this is not an altogether uncommon circumstance. To be clear, Goliath is a unique circumstance. But the idea that Israel is, is against an enemy that it can't conquer, that happens regularly. The first text that we looked at this morning was from the book of Judges. In fact, it's the first of what we call a judge cycle. And in this, you saw what? The people are, are there, they sin. The Lord gives them into the hand of an, a foreign nation. They suffer for a while. They call out to the Lord. The Lord you know, raises up a deliverer, a Messiah, if you will. He fights, he wins, and the land has peace. And, and this goes on. I mean, we could look at, at um, Moses, right? When Moses was in the wilderness, kind of doing his own thing, the people are suffering in Egypt. They're crying out to the Lord. The Lord hears his people, raises up Moses, brings him in. The Lord works wonders and miracles through Moses and leads the people out. In 1 Samuel 17, we see this exact same process happening, this, this cycle happening. But it doesn't happen through tall Saul, the handsome king. Instead, the Lord raises up David, the shepherd boy. Now, what do we know about him? We know he's the youngest of eight sons to Jesse the Bethlehemite. We know that he's got uh, three older brothers, right, that are they're fighting for Saul. Um, but what about the other five? Obviously, I guess I should say the other four. Um, we don't know. Um, because in Israel, when they would take a census, um, that was to determine who was to fight, and that started at age 20. I think it would be reasonable to assume that these five youngest brothers are under 20. It's possible that they're not, but they have some other exemption. Perhaps they are engaged to be married or something like that. Uh, but given that there's five of them, given the, the, the line for the senses, and given the fact that Saul describes David as a youth, I think we need to understand that he is a very, very young man. He's a, probably a teenager of some sort. Though, to be clear, I don't think they had the word teenager. Um, now, what can David hope to do? Right, he... he he has this unwavering hope, or this unwavering faith that he can fight against Goliath and beat him. But does he have any basis for that? 
I mean, we see this exchange where he's kind of talking about it and word gets back to Saul that there's this snot-nosed little kid who's saying, hey, he can do it. And so they bring David before Saul and Saul says, uh, David says, listen, I fought against the bear, I fought against the lion. Goliath, uh, he doesn't say cakewalk, but he kind of just says, the God who delivered me from these animals is going to deliver me from this other animal. Well, Saul is won over. Of course, he tries to put his armor on to David and David says, no, this isn't going to work. So he takes a staff and he takes five smooth stones and he takes his sling. And then he goes to the battle line. And because we have the Bible in front of us, we, we sometimes miss some of the wonder of what's about to happen. On the one hand, you have David, an unclad, small, right, think teenager, um, yet determined individual. But on the other hand, you have Goliath, a hulking, blasphemous, and confident warrior. Picture Goliath again, this tall. He's got a bronze helmet on. He's got a bronze breastplate on. He's got bronze uh, greaves or leg guards on. Bronze was the cutting edge material of the day. It was strong. It, it was dependable. He had an exposed middle, maybe you could say, but you have to remember that he had a shield bearer right in front of him. It would kind of be like me standing here behind this pulpit. As David comes to him, uh, Goliath could be reasonably assured that no attack was going to, to hurt him. The, the bronze and the shield bearer were, would protect him and it gives him confidence. And so as a result, I mean, we need to think of him like a tank. You know, what, what, can, what man can fight against me? And he utters blasphemies because of that. But David's not deterred. And he summarizes rightly what's at stake in verses 45 through 47. He says, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, and the wild beasts of the earth, that, they, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David, of course, goes on to victory. He puts one smooth stone into the sling and launches it, and the stone slips past Man's most cleverly devised armor. Man's most cleverly devised defenses. And it strikes Goliath in the head and he falls down dead. But to be clear, the reason that Goliath lost and the reason David won was so that the nations would know that there was a God in Israel and that the nation of Israel would know that victory does not come from tall Saul. Victory comes from the Lord's own deliverer. So earlier I mentioned uh, instances in Israel's history that, that are filled with these sorts of cycles where you know, the Lord raises up a deliverer. And indeed, if we were to look at the rest of 1 Samuel 1 through the beginning of 2 Samuel, we would see that David's life is marked by many of these examples where he continues to rise and overcome and defeat 
as we think about it, it it almost looks like David's going to do it. That there's not going to be anyone who can conquer him. That he is going to overcome everyone. As the author of Hebrews says, you know, all of the, the, the Old Testament saints were looking to that eternal city whose, whose builder and architect was God, it kind of looked like David was going to bring that about. But we also see that David is a murderer, an adulterer, a lousy father. He has his issues, his sinful issues, just like you and just like me. In 2 Samuel 7, David tries to build the temple, thinking this is going to be a great honor to the Lord. And as he's working toward that end, the Lord sends his prophet Nathan to stop him. Now, given all of David's successes, I would imagine that that would probably be a rather frustrating message. But it comes with a future promise. Listen to what it says. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Though David is given bad news that he will not, um, that, that he'll not build the temple, He has good news saying that one of your descendants is going to build the temple. And that, to be clear, is the Lord Jesus. Um, We know that um, the Lord Jesus, uh, or rather we know that Saul, um, sorry, we know that Solomon was David's physical son. And we know that uh, Solomon built the physical temple. But we also know that that temple was destroyed. So was the temple that came after that. We also recognize that in the Gospel of John, we see that the Lord Jesus talks about, you know, if if you destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. He's talking about himself. John even talks about how the Lord Jesus came and tabernacled with us. It's another way of saying that the Lord Jesus himself is the temple of God. It's the temple of God that... (laughs) that we read about um, a little bit in Acts chapter two. As Peter was preaching, he, he understood this connection between David and Jesus. That David delivered God's people in a small way, but the Lord Jesus delivers them eternally. And it's the Lord Jesus who is this son that David was expecting. And so he, he talks about their death and their burial. You know, Peter says, I have confidence to say that David's uh, tomb is with us today. I have confidence to say that his body is still there. The Lord Jesus, though he died, though he was buried, he did not remain in the grave. Death could not hold him. In fact, his death was the means by which he redeemed his people. So what does it mean? It means that when we look at David and we see the small way that he redeemed the people from the hand of Goliath we need to see the Lord Jesus who redeems us from sin and death that means that as we read the story of Goliath we don't get to make ourselves out to be David if we read the story and we say 
oh yeah, I'm David, and so all I have to do is have faith, and then I will overcome what is in front of me, we've missed it. We need to instead recognize that the Lord Jesus has already overcome the giant of sin and death in your life. That doesn't mean we're not there. If you look with me at verse 52, you'll see the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. When David killed Goliath, the battle was over. There was continued fighting, but the battle was over. In the same way, until the Lord comes back, we live in this time where the battle is over, but there might still be fighting. Christ has conquered the grave and our sins are forgiven. We need to see Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. We need to witness that fact, just as the Philistines witnessed the fact of David's victory over Goliath. And we need to follow the Lord Jesus into battle wherever there might be, whatever that might be. Now, as we continue to think about how to apply that to our life, we need to recognize that there were no doubt Israelite casualties after Goliath died. In the same way, there will be Christians who will suffer and die for faithful obedience to Christ before he returns. Nonetheless, we can have confidence but we know that Christ has already won the victory and, and all we need to do is follow him and, and that gives us confidence. And it helps us even if we go back to our mathematical question. Does David and Goliath have anything to do with summer algebra packets? Yes, do them. To be clear, don't try to attack them. Don't, don't sling a stone at them or, or cut them in, in, in half with a sword. Recognize that the Lord Jesus, your great redeemer, through whom all things are made, including algebra, is seated on his throne. And he's called you to be obedient to your parents and to all authorities that, that he has placed over you. When we then think about doing something, we need to remember that we are honoring Christ by obeying his words and the words of those authorities. That means that we need to follow Christ and honor him wherever he leads, even into the deepest thickets of algebra. If you're someone here who doesn't have a summer algebra packet, perhaps it's geometry or whatever else. Um, if you're here wrestling with broken relationships, depression, addiction, a difficult diagnosis, uh, any other difficulty in life, please do not view it as the Goliath in your life. The Lord Jesus, David's greater son, has already defeated the Goliath of sin and death in your life and in mine. So we need to recognize that the Lord who has all things and has sent his only begotten son has done so to redeem us. And as we think about that reality, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we can lean into the Lord. And we can know that because the battle is already won, though I'm in difficult circumstances now, I will be part of the victory. Though those circumstances don't always feel momentary or light, Paul does tell us that these momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The Lord might not see us 
over the difficulty. That is to say, the Lord might not deliver us from the difficulty, but we have confidence because of what Jesus has done that the Lord will see us through it. We might also recognize um, the unusualness of our day. Last week, Bill Tate in his, his sermon encouraged us to praise the Lord that we were born in the United States. To be clear, I agree with him. But I think we can all say without a doubt, this is an unusual year. Um, we are in uh, what one of our, another one of our youths called a non-preferred situation. That is to say, of all of the 2020s that you could possibly imagine, this is not the one that we would have picked. If you've tried to organize any sort of event, maybe it's a wedding, a family reunion, a birthday party, heck, a date night, you've probably bumped up against the immovable object that is 2020. And perhaps you're tempted to think that the lines of, of God's providence have not fallen to you in pleasant places. How do we respond? How does the message of 1 Samuel 17 apply to us? I'll give you one closing idea. Perhaps you're here today because the governor has given a most recent mandate to wear masks and when you go out and about and you, you look around, you do so with dismay. Perhaps it's with contempt or anger. You're wearing a mask, other people aren't. What's going on? Why are they not doing what's right? So you say. If that's our understanding, on that side, we need to realize that the Lord who has all things in his hands includes your COVID-19 status. And that should drive us all to pray that the Lord would spare us and the Lord would spare our land from this infection. But on the other side, perhaps you're here today, but you were tempted to stay home because of this most recent mandate to wear masks. And you think, I'm tired of people telling me how I should live or what I should do. May I suggest that if that is the case, we need to realize that the Lord Jesus does in fact use delegated authority in the lives of his people. Sometimes in our sin, we seek to fulfill our own desires and we don't realize that when we do that, we're rejecting the, those the Lord has put over us and in fact, we're rejecting the Lord himself. But note, I'm not here saying that we just have to have a kind of a, a spirit of let's all get along right, as in some weak need plea. Instead, I'm calling that whether we're masked or unmasked, here or out in the community, we need to die to ourselves. We, we, in dying to ourselves, we need to follow the commands of the scripture. We need to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he leads. And we need to love one another. And remember, that's doing what's best for the other person with God deciding what's best regardless of the consequences to ourselves. We need to love others and care for them. For some, that will mean a gentle reminder that their security, their health, their, their well-being is in the care of a sovereign God. For others, that will be a gentle notice that God has given authorities in our lives. For all of us, it is seeing David's greater son the Lord Jesus, the one who defeated sin and death. And it's understanding that Christ's work 
was so accomplished that we are to go and tell people about it. Why? Well, just as Goliath died so that the nations would know there was a God in Israel and that the people of Israel would know that salvation is from the Lord, so also, as we look at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are to go and proclaim that gospel everywhere to all nations, that all the nations would know that there is a God in Israel, right? And that salvation is not in the strength of might or in my physical well-being, but is through the gracious and loving work of the Lord Jesus. May we follow the Lord Jesus as Israel followed David into battle wherever he might lead. Amen.